It's cold. It's snowy. And there's a lot to talk about in the news this week, so let's get to it. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. On Thursday, it became clear why the governor's office has withheld this data, because it is awful. We'll go through some cold cases in Schenectady dating back a decade. People have, haven't come forward with the information that could potentially, you know, crack the case or break the case wide open. And we'll take a look back at the rollout of the polio vaccine in the capital region of the 1950s. We had a great photo in the paper that day of the guys all proudly standing in front of the, in the cartons and uh, their 1955 caps. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's start with a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler to go over the top headlines. Now, Casey, as you know, you and I discuss the topics that we'll be covering in this segment before we start recording. And until a short while ago, it looked like it was going to be a relatively low-key week for headlines, if one can say that, at least compared to some of our previous weeks. But uh, just a few short hours ago, we got a bit of a scoop that kicked things up a notch. Uh, New York State Attorney General Tish James released a report that found the State Department of Health was seriously underreporting nursing home deaths related to COVID-19. So can you break that down for us? What's in this report and what does it mean? Well, there are kind of three big findings from this report, which, as you noted, came out um, Thursday morning from Attorney General Tish James's office. The first and really the top line is that as many have suspected and um, many have reported in trying to do their own analyses, it appears that the State Department of Health radically underreported the number of nursing home residents who died of COVID-19. Basically, DOH juked the numbers by only counting people who died at nursing homes. And of course, a large number of people, basically a, a third of the total, according to the analysis by the attorney general's office, were nursing home residents who died after being you know, move to hospitals as people often are when they are in extremis. And the Department of Health has been asked for these numbers since last July, after the agency released uh, what uh, can only be described as a self-exonerating report saying that a policy that the agency, the Cuomo administration, instituted during the height of the COVID epidemic, which required nursing homes to take in patients who were COVID positive, according to the self-exonerating report, that policy had no effect on nursing home deaths. The AG's report says that that is potentially wrong, that there are indications that that policy did play a role. The policy was put in place back during a period when The Cuomo administration was very worried that hospitals were going to get swamped. So in trying to 
you know, clear out beds in hospitals. They said that nursing homes could not turn away COVID positive patients if they could take those people in safely. And the AG's report also concludes that in many cases, nursing homes were not following proper protocols to keep COVID positive patients and residents away from you know, the healthier population and that that contributed to outbreaks at nursing homes as well. And in some cases, uh, there is, according to the AG's report, a clear causal link to be drawn between low staffing levels at nursing homes and the number of people who died there. Now, the State Department of Health has continued to stonewall the full data on nursing home deaths. They have turned aside foils from activists, from researchers, from reporters, including the Times Union, for uh, offering up uh, you know, uh, arguments for FOIL exemptions that are strained, were strained to begin with and become more strained as time has gone on. The uh, governor's office has been saying for months now, oh, that data is coming soon. That data is coming soon. And uh, on Thursday, it became clear why the governor's office has withheld this data, because it is awful. All right. We'll have more on that report from Attorney General Tish James coming up later in the podcast. Moving on to other topics, another local capital region individual has been charged uh, with participation in the siege on the Capitol on January 6th. That's the U.S. Capitol. Can you tell us more about that story? Yeah. James Bonet uh, of Glens Falls is the young man who was arrested. He faces federal misdemeanor charges. But, you know, when it's a federal charge, you don't even want to be facing a misdemeanor. Photos alleged to show him in the Capitol uh, smoking what appears to be a marijuana cigarette, um, popularly known as a joint, inside the Capitol. Um, that is why a federal judge who, um, uh, you know, in his initial court appearance, told him that, you know, he's going to be subject to drug testing and he can't commit any more alleged offenses and he cannot smoke marijuana or take in cannabinoids of any way. So no CDB rub downs for him anytime soon. All right. Well, moving on to the next topic, our favorite, coronavirus and COVID-19. Can you give us a picture of what the pandemic looks like this week in the capital region and in the state? Statewide, the governor in his uh, Wednesday briefing noted that, uh, you know, he was right, that there was, in fact, a post-holiday surge in cases and that that appears to be tailing off somewhat. Now, that is not exactly good news. Nobody should be throwing away their masks. But it appears that at this juncture, of course, the worst of, you know, the post-holiday spike in cases is over with. But at the same time, uh, in the capital region, we're still dealing with the, the worst spike that we've had over the entire course of the pandemic. You know, uh, grim records continue to fall. Albany uh, County um, went past uh, 300 deaths, which is, you know, uh, not, not the kind of yardstick you want to be exceeding. So it's, it's just a reminder that attention must be paid and folks need to continue to, you know, to follow mask wearing, social distancing as much as they can to ensure that the numbers don't start ticking up again. 
All right. For more on all of the latest news uh, with the pandemic, once again, I'll remind you to visit timesunion.com. Next headline, there's been a major development in the case of a local biker who went missing two years ago. Can you give us an update? Yeah, uh, this is, um, as Brendan Lyons um, scooped the world earlier uh, this week, a national guardsman named Jack Jeffers, 25-year-old member, uh, you know, a a well-known local motorcyclist or well-known within local motorcycle circles, has been charged, has taken a plea, in fact, to manslaughter related to the disappearance two years ago of a Saratoga County motorcyclist named uh, Michael Ahern. He lived in Stillwater. He went missing very suddenly from his home when investigators went to it about a week after his disappearance was first reported. His pets were still there. His vehicles were still there, indicating that whatever happened to him had happened in a hurry. On Tuesday, Saratoga County Sheriff's officials had a press conference where they did not want to talk about what happened to Mr. Ahern's um, remains. Uh, And that indicates that there is an ongoing investigation that might include other people. And uh, this is a matter that led to the questioning of a former legislative aide who a few months ago was arrested and charged uh, with uh, sexual assault and more, and uh, as Brendan Lyons also reported, had been leading a double life as a top aide to a prominent member of the state assembly and was also the leader of a biker gang that engaged in violent activities at times. So it is unclear at this point that legislative aide nor any member of his gang have not been charged with anything connected to the disappearance of Mr. Ahern, but the investigation, as they say, is ongoing. Next, we had a great bit of reporting from our own Eduardo Medina on the Albany LEAD program and a sense that this sort of unique program that has been in place in Albany, it's only the third such program in the nation that aims to reduce low-level arrests and racial disparities within the criminal justice system, some sense that it's not really working. Can you talk about that story? Yeah, um, the LEAD program stands for Law Enforcement uh, Assisted Diversion. So in other words, it's a program that is meant to identify people who are arrested and are identified as as perhaps benefiting from, rather than seeing their cases go to trial, um, working out some kind of uh, alternative form of, of criminal redress that could you know, reduce incarceration as well. The program was not working, or the conclusion has been that it was not working because the majority of people, roughly two thirds, who have benefited from it are white, whereas Roughly two-thirds of the people who are arrested in the city of Albany are Black. So rather than alleviate uh, criminal justice racial disparities, it seemed to be uh, reinforcing them or not doing enough to, uh, to fight them. Mayor Kathy Sheehan's office initially responded to this story by saying, well, we, you know, we reached out to the leaders of the LEAD program because it's kind of a consortium of law enforcement social justice activists and uh, and others. We reached out to them, but we got no response. And 
within a couple of days, the mayor threw a letter to the editor that appeared in the Times Union written by Brian Shea, who's her top aide, acknowledged that uh, she was discouraged, disappointed um, by the data, and that uh, she was going to be taking more of a lead, if you will, administrative position over the lead program. That news came as something of a surprise to many of the current stakeholders in the lead program who said, if there's a problem with this program, let's do more in terms of community outreach to fix it. The solution isn't the city essentially taking it over. That appears to be a political solution to a complex criminal justice program. So great work, obviously, by Eduardo in his analysis, and it seems to be driving driving a change, whether that's a change that is going to be embraced by all of Leeds stakeholders uh, is, is another question. Now, speaking of politics in the city of Albany, the Albany mayoral race is starting to take form in some way. A couple of candidates have announced that they will be running. Can you tell us what that is shaping up to look like? Yeah, that's right. Um, The latest to throw his or her hat into the ring for the mayoral campaign is Greg Idala, who is a well-known local stand-up comedian whose family has been in the city for quite a while. His agenda, such as it is right now, is largely built around kind of boosting optimism and hope in a city that he says has um, very low morale. Local activist Lukey Forbes, who was a a well-known figure in the Black Lives Matter protests after um, the killing of George Floyd, has also announced, as well as uh, the Reverend Valerie Faust, who is who would be the second uh, Black candidate in the race, is also there. Now, obviously, in Albany, being a very Democratic city, the race here is uh, all for the Democratic nomination, which, of course, is going to be determined in June. Mayor Sheehan, who has already announced that she is going to seek another term, is by far, and I mean far is uh, not quite the word for it, the best resource candidate. So it is at this point kind of hard to see anything that would knock her from that perch. But uh, as we have discussed before, anything can happen in politics. Absolutely. We have seen that play out time and time again. All right, Casey, thank you so much for joining me again this week. Once again, all the headlines that we discussed, you can learn more at timesunion.com. We'll catch up with you next week. Thanks. As we mentioned in the previous segment, New York State Attorney General Tish James released a scathing report this week that shows that the state was underreporting nursing home deaths due to COVID-19. Our Capitol Bureau's managing editor, Brendan Lyons, sat down with reporters Amanda Fries and Chris Bragg on our sister podcast, Capitol Confidential, to further dissect the report. Here's a snippet of their conversation. As the governor said repeatedly, like fire through dry grass is how COVID-19 would go through nursing homes. But now the question is, did the state fail to pull out its fire hose and stop that? So, Chris, the political implications of this report run deep. As we all know, Tish James and Cuomo had been aligned politically at one time and may still be that way. But this report, many people are viewing this as the attorney general 
really planting her flag for the first time to say, I am going to be objective and whether it's good or bad, I'm going to expose wrongdoing in the administration. So what, what, what is the fallout, do you think, of this report? During her first two years in office as an attorney general, it seemed just from what we could tell, like the office was very focused on the Trump administration, you know, filing dozens of lawsuits regarding some really high profile things like Trump's nonprofit and she'd focused on things like the NRA. Um, it had seemed like she had been pretty cooperative generally with Cuomo's office. And so I, I don't think that many Republicans in New York woke up this morning and thought they'd be putting out statements praising Tish James for uh, her independent report today. So I think it's a very surprising to people in the political world. I mean, if you go back to the 2018 campaign after Eric Schneiderman had to resign, Cuomo, you know, endorsed her and they were helpful to each other. Cuomo helped fundraise for Tish and she went so far as to, you know, uh, if you recall, to forego the uh, Working Families Party endorsement, which is a, a longtime ally of hers. Basically, she did that at the request of Democrats, including Cuomo. So uh, we've, we've lamented a lot uh, and written a lot about the fact that there hasn't been a ton of enforcement from state level actors like Jacob in the inspector general's office concerning um, actions in the legislature by the executive branch. And so it's, you know, this is an unexpected Albany development for a lot of people that, that she came out and did this and we'll, we'll have to see what, what happens from here. Sure. And, and it's worth noting as well that there could be something, another dynamic at play here. And that is that this investigation was done by the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit within the Attorney General's office. These are, these are units, there, there's 50 of them across the country at each state. They are overseen by the Office of Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. They are largely firewalled and supposed to be because of the grants they receive from outside political influence, including within their own office. So huh. it is possible too that the that the tenor of this report, the findings were not watered down because this is a unit that is is largely left untouched in terms of outside political influence. Certainly it's her office, her signature on there. So it's going to have created a lot of tension, I think, between the second floor and the attorney general's office, at least for the short term. I mean, when you think about it, also Trump's out of office now and Joe Biden, the Democrat, is the president. So, um, you know, what does this office do now? You know, I, I don't know if that has anything to do with the timing of this. So, Mandy, at the time of this podcast, Howard Zucker has been tasked, the commissioner of health has been tasked with crafting a response to this report. And it's noticeable, isn't it, that we have heard nothing yet from the governor's office on this report. So what do you think this means in terms of Howard Zucker and his future with the New York State Health Department? Well, certainly Cuomo could use him to fall on a sword if he wanted to sacrifice and, and absolve blame for himself. So there certainly is that aspect. And the fact that we have Republican lawmakers, minority leaders in the, the Senate specifically, Robert Ort has you know, called for Commissioner Zucker to resign simply because the lack of transparency, he says, is creating distrust. That's his argument for Zucker stepping down. Whether that will happen remains to be seen. 
I do anticipate that um, the commissioner is going to be providing a response to this report at some point today. It was indicated to me it's going to be lengthy, so that'll be a fun thing to read, I guess. And we'll certainly have to wait and see what uh, Zucker has to say and whether he responds to that call among all of the other things that are found in the report. To hear more of that discussion, check out our sister podcast, Capital Confidential, available wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, we'll hear about some cold cases in the city of Schenectady. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. In Schenectady, six homicide investigations remain open over the last decade. Some of them are shootings, others stabbings. One case that gained national attention a few years ago involved an arson and the death of several young children. This week, reporter Paul Nelson took a look back at these six unsolved homicides. I spoke to him about those cold cases and where their investigations stand now. Can you talk about a couple of the cases? Let's start with the first one that you kind of open with in the story. Yeah, the first one, actually, the uh, two-year anniversary was Monday, and that's why I decided to do the story. So I used that as sort of the launching point for the story and that involved a uh, 38-year-old man, uh, Roscoe Foster, and he was shot two years ago uh, in the Central State Street neighborhood in the uh, city of Schenectady. And uh, since then, his family, primarily the mother of his son, he has this, the child is now, I believe, five years old, but she's, you know, made efforts, you know, throughout this whole ordeal to try to keep it, you know, sort of in the spotlight. Probably last year, I remember sometime. You know, she raised money through a GoFundMe page to actually erect a billboard that they put at um, a high visibility location in Schenectady, specifically uh, State Street and Brandywine Avenue. So I spoke to her and she obviously expressed her frustration because, you know, in terms of the case, and I think this holds true for not all the cases, but to a lot of them where police have a good idea of who you know, the suspect is or who the person that may have committed the uh, the homicide is, but it's just a matter of building a case, building an airtight case. And I think the police have shared that with her. So that just obviously, you know, makes the frustration even greater. So uh, that was one case. And then the other case uh, involved a 34-year-old woman named Aisha Merritt, another Schenectady resident. And she was actually, and this happened on July 5th of last year, she was actually with a couple of her friends uh, at a, a local night spot is what I'll say. And, uh, you know, she was shot in the head, but 
she wasn't the intended target. So she was an innocent uh, victim that was caught in a crossfire. And I spoke to her mother, a woman named Shanta, who lives in Manhattan. And again, you know, frustration with her is that, hey, you know, she was with her girlfriends in a night spot where obviously there's a, a lot of people around and still, you know, it's difficult and people have, haven't come forward with the information that could potentially, you know, crack the case or break the case wide open. And that is frustrating for her. Another situation that makes this even more tragic is that Aisha Merritt, at the time of her killing, she has a 15-year-old son, and now her mother is helping to raise that young man. So, I mean, it's just really heartbreaking to talk to these, uh, you know, these individuals, these loved ones, and to hear their story. And then on the opposite side, the police, I spoke to the police chief, Eric Clifford, who's saying, oftentimes, it's people coming forward. You know, we have a good idea. We have a person of interest. But obviously, we need to have evidence, you know, to have probable cause in order to make an arrest. And that's oftentimes what the situation is here. Sure. Now, what do we know about the two cases that you mentioned that, you know, what's public knowledge about, you know, who might be behind it? Well, police have not publicly identified any suspects. But in the Roscoe Foster case, police have, again, a good idea. But it's just a matter of just sometimes getting people to come forward to offer the evidence that they know to, you know, there's eyewitnesses oftentimes in these cases. So it's just a matter of getting people to come forward uh, to then, like I said, to be able to arrest somebody. In terms of, you had asked me earlier about some of these uh, cold cases and when the Schenectady Police Department uh, gave me the information, they went back 10 years and a month, there's roughly a half dozen, six cold or unsolved cases. And this one, I know people in the capital region and beyond are probably familiar with. It involved an arson fire on Hewlett Street. And there was a father, I think his name is Dave Terry, and three of his children. And they all perished, unfortunately, in that fire. You know, he was 32 and the kids ranged in age from uh, 11 month old uh, to three years old. And that case also, like I said, uh, that's somewhat convoluted because they did arrest three individuals and charged them with lying to the grand jury, you know, related to the case, but they never formally charged them with actually committing the arson. So, I mean, that's another case that uh, people are aware of. And then I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention, uh, you know, the the others too. There was um, Justin Coleman. That was a fatal shooting that happened on in September of 2012. And then uh, Marquise Salmon, in June of 2015, and that was a fatal stabbing. And then May of last year, Fred Drentry, that was also another fatal shooting. And the Schenectady Police Department has a tips line. So for anybody who might be listening to this, if you know anything, and that's another thing that, you know, the family members, they stress to me, we just want people to come forward. If you saw something, you know something, you know, you can make anonymous tips. And, you know, this is the police department's tips line. It's area code 518-788-6566 is that number. Yes, and you can visit timesunion.com. If you didn't catch that, uh, timesunion.com, it'll have the number as well. In your reporting about these cold cases, you know, what was the most difficult thing about reporting on something like this? You know, things that that don't have a hard and fast conclusion, you know? What's the, what's the hardest thing about it for you? Excellent question. And I, I think, you know, what it boils down to is just... You know, striking that balance because you understand both sides. You understand, you know, just the frustration, the pain 
of somebody who's lost a loved one in such a tragic way, a shooting or a stabbing. But then, like I said, on the flip side of that is that people aren't coming forward. So the police department doesn't have enough evidence to actually, you know, make a case to build, you know, an airtight case. So it was just understanding that, yeah, I mean, they're upset, you know, they want an arrest, you know, they want to see justice, you know, serve for their loved one. But then the police are saying, okay, yeah, we are committed. We have an investigator, we have detectives, you know, actively working the case and yet and still nobody's been arrested and, you know, time is going by. I mean, then oftentimes when I talk to Amanda Foss, Amanda Patterson, excuse me, who's Roscoe Foster's, um, you know, girlfriend and the mother of his child, she's saying, okay, I feel also sometimes that the police aren't keeping us in the loop to the extent that they can. But oftentimes the police, you know, you can't reach out to somebody every single week because there might be no change in that case, right? Yeah, we're still actively invested in the case, but I can certainly understand why you'd want to be updated like almost daily if, if possible, but it just is such a tough, you know, situation to be in. Certainly. And so tragic too. all of those stories, all of those shootings and, and you know, the fire, the fire, actually, um, that one had, you know, gained national news because of the, the little girl who survived. Right. There was one of the one of his children had survived and yep. she, you know, launched something of a viral campaign when she asked for Christmas cards. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Sapphire Terry can't remember her exact age, uh, but she suffered. Uh, burns to like 75% of her body, but she managed to survive, you know, obviously, you know, uh, severely burned. And like you said, it just garnered a lot of national attention because people uh, heard about the case and people uh, were very sympathetic. And I believe, you know, then President Barack Obama might have sent her a card and she, like you said, she launched a, uh, a campaign and people just responded overwhelmingly. It was a GoFundMe page and I can't remember what the exact amount, but it was exact amount was, but it was hundreds of thousands of dollars and she went to live with her aunt and uh like i said it just it's heartbreaking when you you see something like that a, a young child people just overwhelmingly responded uh and, and like i said the, the effort uh, just raised a lot of money for her now do you know if all of that national attention you know led to any breaks in that case not to my knowledge, like I said, they did arrest, uh, you know, there were federal charges that were brought against, um, you know, three of the individuals. But again, that was just for, you know, lying, uh, you know, for perjury during grand jury um, uh, testimony. But in terms of uh, anybody being charged in connection with that arson, you know, the case obviously still, obviously still remains open today. The state and the nation are grappling with plans to roll out the coronavirus vaccine in the first months of 2021. But it's not our first rodeo when it comes to rolling out hotly anticipated cutting-edge vaccines. Features reporter C.J. Lias recently took a look back in time to the year 1955, when the revolutionary polio vaccine made its debut in the capital region. I spoke to him to learn more about it. All right. So can you give me a rough timeline of the events? When did the polio vaccine first come to Albany? It was April 13th, 1955. Uh, the cases arrived, the first cases arrived in uh, Albany at the airport. And we had a great photo in the paper that day of the guys all proudly standing in front of the, in the cartons and uh, their 1955 caps and that kind of thing. But uh, the next day it was already arriving at the distributors 
and uh, Albany County uh, set their first inoculation day for May 2nd. And how it was going to be distributed was through schools. So school children were going to get it. But some of those shipments also went to doctors who were going to give it out privately to the patients who did not want to wait. And then by the 22nd of that month, Albany County doctors, family doctors, got together and had a meeting at a restaurant, an informal meeting of all the family doctors. And they all agreed that they would not give it out to their private patients, not to themselves, their families, anyone who asked before the school children got it. So polio affected primarily children, right? That's why they were, you know, so adamant about giving it to the kids first. Yes, it was. It made kids sick and uh, some recovered from it, but it also caused infantile paralysis, literal paralysis in kids. And a lot of kids died. And uh, it was a global problem and it had been for a long time. And then the vaccine, Jonas Salk's vaccine had come along. Okay. So it was the Salk vaccine was the one that got shipped to Albany. Okay. Right. That was the first one. He, He was out of the University of Pittsburgh. He and his team had developed this series of inoculations that was uh, supposed to be three shots over a period of five weeks, I think. And then there was some back and forth about whether it was supposed to be two shots and three shots, right? There was right. Like a little... <laughs> kind of like now where some people are speculating whether one dose of the COVID vaccine would be enough. They were saying, well, maybe two could be fine. The, the boost, the first and the booster would be fine. And Salk even came on board and said, yeah, that should probably do it. And then, yeah, there was back and forth as to that. And then they eventually, U.S. government reversed themselves and said, well, no, we'll go back to the, the three shots. Because the when it was down to the two shots, it was going to be, you got one and then you wouldn't get the other one for seven to 10 months later. But when it was the three shot dose, it was within five weeks. So while this was all happening, there was a bit of a, um, a situation with another vaccine that was, um, I guess, approved for polio. What, what happened there? Well, it was still a soft vaccine, but it was uh, different companies had gotten the rights to uh, manufacture it. And there was one, uh, this family owned uh, company, Cutter Laboratories out of California. And what they did was they had sent out a whole shipment of them where they did not properly inactivate the live virus that's in vaccine. For some reason, there was some snafu along the line and it did not get inactivated. And that went out to hundreds of thousands and I think 200,000 kids in across the country got that uh, vaccine. 40,000 of them got polio. That's horrifying. I know. 200 uh, and got some degree of paralysis and 10 died. Oh, my God. How tragic. So did did any kids in the capital region receive that vaccine? No. As far as we can tell, no. They kept uh, testing them daily. They were reports in the paper that this many kids were tested and none were shown here. None, you know, no, even though we got the vaccine, some got the vaccine here. Now this was private inoculations here, at least. These were not the ones that were going to the schools. Okay. So the Cutter, the Cutter company sent these vaccines to the private doctors is what you're saying. At least in New York. I think each state or each community did theirs differently. Here it was done through school districts or physicians could buy it for their own practice. Gotcha. So that's pretty a pretty horrifying complication to a vaccine, you know, and uh, that must have led to some degree to some vaccine hesitancy among the community, right? It did. There were reports in New York City, I guess, after that, a lot of the people who had already signed up, parents who had signed their kids up just didn't show. 
and there was a big problem in New York. It didn't have as much an effect here, but people still were hesitant. And uh, it did actually put a, you know, we'd hear about the soft vaccine. I have anyway, my whole life, but it put a, a damper on it for years and it never really recovered completely. By 1961, one of his rivals, Albert Sabin, created his vaccine, which was an oral vaccine. The government, U.S. government was still, uh, had a contract or whatever proper terminology was with, with Jonas Salk for his vaccine. So they couldn't dump him and, and move on. And so Sabin had to go outside the country to test his, and he tested it in other nations, including Russia, where it proved highly effective of all places in Russia. And, uh, by 1961, they were able to switch over to the Sabin vaccine. Gotcha. And that's the one that I'm assuming that you and I both got. The one, right, exactly. The one that kids don't mind, the actual vaccination <laughs> that kids don't mind because it doesn't exactly. hurt, right? Right. It might not taste great, but it's, yeah. I mean, I don't remember how it tasted, but I, I would have I taken that over a big shot in the arm any day. Or so. three shots or, yeah. Okay. So now... In your research, uh, you did a really long piece on timesunion.com that folks can read. What was the most interesting thing that you discovered in your research on the polio vaccine rollout? What was most interesting to you? It was treated as such an event. Whereas, I mean, we're in a scary time right now and things are different, obviously, than they were in 1955 in many ways. But when it arrived, when the the first inoculations arrived at distributors here in the uh, capital district people gathered people brought their families to see it arrive and we had another great picture of uh, police officers holding up this young girl and showing her the box i think it was at the local i can't remember which which distributor it was a uh, pharmaceutical company but uh it was at their local headquarters here in albany or manans and they uh he's holding it up she's smiling looking at the box it wasn't treated as such a scary thing the vaccine it was a real cause for celebration, it seems. Right, exactly. Wow. And of course, polio, I don't think, is as easily transmissible as the coronavirus or COVID-19 no, no, is. No, not at all. So you could have a big celebratory party with a lot of people, which sounds well, really <laughs> awesome right about now. Although, <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> and that's the thing. Inadvisable. This all, exactly. This all happened not after a 10-month lockdown or during a 10-month lockdown when everything was effectively just shut down and you're watching, you know, death tolls rack up throughout the world. It's, it's people are going about their daily business. Which is, as you said, in stark contrast with what's happening today. Two other of the surprising things or interesting things I thought were that, like I was saying about the soft vaccine, that that didn't end up being the cure-all, that that there were other things after that. Because even today, you still hear about soft, the soft vaccine and Jonas Salk. And you do a little research into him and the Saban and you find out they were supposedly bitter rivals. They're very arrogant, egotistical men. They weren't these heroes you, you hoped they were, but I think back then they kind of were presented that way. And then come to find out too, and doing this research that the U S wasn't actually considered polio free quote unquote uh, until 1979. So wow. it was through, through these vaccinations and, and the process of years and years of giving them that was until 1979 that we were considered polio free. Wow. And that was roughly the same time that we were also considered smallpox free too. Yeah. Must've been a pivotal year. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about um, what you found interesting about your research or your piece? Yeah, that it was changed on a daily basis based on 
U.S. government, state government, local government, and their decisions, and the Cutter incident and uh, distribution problems, but still, from the moment they arrived, which was April 13th, 1955, to the day they first started inoculating kids here in Albany, it was May 23rd. Okay. And so even though all those things happened and it was back and forth and it seemed crazy, that was a little over a month. And I understand it's a much bigger issue today and, and a much deadlier issue, but there is no parallel there. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.